Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. The government's budget watchdog says younger workers face paying an extra two and a half thousand euro per year in taxes so older people can still retire at 66 years of age. But should they be the ones to pay? It seems like most things are built against us, not to work with us. Older people have problems as well and the younger people are just better off. Government offers a public sector pay rise, but what about the private sector? Where do they stand? And later, life savings gone in an instant. We speak to a man who fell victim to a complex and convincing banking scam. Do join the conversation online with your comments and your questions. As always, it's hashtag tonight's VMTV. Evening. The jury in the trial of Ryan Giggs has been discharged after failing to reach verdicts on any of the three counts he faced during the four-week domestic violence case. Well, for more on this, our courts reporter Deborah Naylor joins us from Manchester. Deborah, can you tell us what happened today? Yes, Kira. Well, today marked day 17 of this trial and this afternoon uh, the judge called the jurors back into the courtroom um, after they were just a minute shy of uh, 23 hours of deliberations. After giving them the option of returning majority verdicts yesterday, she asked them were they any closer, had they reached a verdict on any of the counts? And the foreman replied no. She then asked, well, if they were given more time, would there be a reasonable possibility of them reaching verdicts? And the jury said no. Now, Ryan Giggs had gone on trial accused of headbutting his ex-girlfriend Kate Greville at his home in Manchester in November 2020 and of assaulting her sister on the same date. He was further accused of a charge of coercing and controlling behaviour against his ex-partner between 2007 and 2010. The former Manchester United footballer had denied all of the charges against him. At the outset of the trial, the prosecution said that Mr Giggs and Ms Greville's relationship was punctuated by violence and volatility. Ryan Giggs had admitted cheating on his girlfriend, but he said he had never physically assaulted a woman or attempted to coerce and control a woman. And eventually, um, at the end of all of the evidence and after their deliberations, the jury could not decide whether to convict or acquit him. So that jury has now been discharged. Will there be another retrial, would you imagine, Deborah? Well, that will potentially, that will become clearer next week because Ryan Giggs' case will be listed here at uh, Manchester Crown Court on September 7th. And at that point, it should become clearer whether or not the Crown Prosecution Service will be seeking a retrial in this case. And a, a potential date was in fact mentioned today of June next year. There was a little reaction from Ryan Giggs in court throughout their proceedings, but he did bow his head when that date of June was mentioned. As I said, that 
should become clearer next week. But for now, uh, the judge said that these proceedings are still live. She remanded Ryan Giggs on continuing bail and he left the courthouse this afternoon, Kira. All right, Deborah Naylor in Manchester first. We leave it there. Thank you. Well, the true cost of keeping the pension age down amid an ageing population was laid bare today with the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council saying that younger workers face paying an extra €2,500 a year in taxes so that people can still retire at the age of 66. With young people already struggling in a cost of living crisis, can they really afford to foot the bill? We got reaction from the people of Dublin. My parents and my grandparents, like generation, you know, it's kind of one of those generations where they just slip into a job at an early age and they can work their way up and they see the stability when they get up in the job. For generations like us, like, you know, it's fast food, it's bars, it's nightclubs, it's, it's such an unstable, like, area of work that you can't see, like, myself working in a bar, at a nighttime bar and having a pension out of that or being able to do it in my 30s, 40s and 50s. It's just not feasible. And then anything else is just extortionate prices when you're talking about college or you're talking about any other entry to a good paying job that your grandparents and your parents went into. It's just not feasible for our generation to get a mortgage, to be able to secure, you know, a decent living wage. It's a bigger venture to try and find a place to live, um, to try and get that work as well, and to try and get work um, in something that you like as well has become more difficult as well. And you have to settle for things and do day jobs and all of those things just to pay the bills, just basic, basic things that people could afford long ago. My children now are in their 20s and I, I fear for them. They're running out of everything, actually. They're paying more money for everything. And I think our generation... We've had a reasonable time. We're a bit stuck. We want, I think you need a mixture for both, really. But that's what our parents worked their whole lives towards, and like they they expected that. So I feel it's completely fair that they retired at the age that they're supposed to retire at. I don't think I don't think it's fair to change the goalposts at this point. Like maybe if you maybe if you change for people from a certain age onwards, like say like people who are like 30 years old or or, or 35, 40 or something. But like when when you're already close to retirement age, I don't think it's fair at all to change the goalposts at that point looking at not even like the like the cost of houses but thinking like will I ever be able to afford my own house like will I always be renting that sort of thing. The, the difference was uh, young people maybe they expect everything now whereas we worked and maybe we were waiting six months for a table and chairs you know that when we got married whereas now they expect the, the houses to be furnished you know everything straight away but that's not happening either for the young people I know they can't get houses if you can keep older keep working when you can that's great like I'm just turning up for 60 actually I can do another 10 years but then maybe by not time to get 65 68 I want to have a break so I think you have to have a generate allowed to go when you want rents are up 100% since the pandemic has happened people are finding it a lot harder to work those hours to make money to pay for things to make ends meet which makes it really really difficult and again I don't want to sound terrible towards uh, our older population of course like they've worked very very hard for for what they have but at the same time I'm not saying that things were easier just things were a lot different than they are now People speaking to us on the streets of Dublin today. Well, to discuss this further, I'm joined by Fine Gael TD, Jennifer Carroll McNeil, Sinn Féin TD, Mairead Farrell, News Talk broadcaster, Shane Coleman, and Deputy Political Editor at the Irish Independent, Hugh O'Connell. You're all very welcome to the programme. Hugh, I'm going to start with you because, look, pensions, the ticking time bomb, we've all heard about it. And perhaps when you're in your 20s or your 30s, you're thinking, I'll deal with that, you know, mm. when I'm a little bit older. But the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council making it kind of clear today, didn't they? Young people will have to pay more now to fund today's pensioners. 
Yeah, I mean, this is a consequence of our ageing population. The demographics are changing. Um, more, more and more people are retiring, fewer people in the workforce. And in that situation, you're going to have a, a, a gap between what the state can afford to pay and what it's taking in in tax revenue. And I think the Department of Finance did some work on this in 2019, which showed, or the figures in 2019 showed, that by the end of this decade, there'll be a 7 billion euro gap between um, what the government has and what it needs for age, just age-related expenditure. So that's kind of keeping up with the demographics in terms of the health service and what it can expect, but also uh, pensions. Um, so there is the, the, you know, the long-talked-about, long-discussed pensions time bomb, and it is a major problem um, for this government, for the next government. Uh, its successive governments have kind of ignored it. Um, we had and they put figures on it today, didn't they? They were saying yeah. you know, 35,000 yeah. euro income. You're talking an extra two so, grand in taxes. So the pension age, you know, the age at which the person should retire was a, a, you know, a major issue in the last general election. Sinn Féin said it should go back to 65. Uh, Fine Gael, uh, I think we're in favour of bringing it up to 67. Fianna Fáil wanted to keep it 66. The agreement uh, in, by this government is to keep it at 66 and to reform the pension system whereby you would introduce uh, five... Uh, different rates of the pension depending on when you retire up to the age of 70. So the longer you work, the better the pension you would get. Um, I suppose the issue with that is we're going to end up paying more PRSI to fund it all. Uh, and again, it comes back to the, the point that, the, that IFAC are making is that these kind of choices, if we still allow people to retire at 66 uh, on a state pension, then that is going to have knock-on consequences in terms of what you know, younger people are paying in terms of taxation over the next... 10, 20, yeah, and there years. was kind of clear figures, wasn't there today, Shane? Like they mentioned, you know, increasing that uh, retirement age to 67 could save somebody on 35,000 euro um, a year, 800 euro in taxes. Like they actually put, put figures on it, which was really helpful. It is. It's the first time we, this is the price of populism, basically. I mean, we've known for years that this, this isn't going to work, that, that there's a problem here. I mean, Hugh laid out the figures here. In 1991, we had five workers for every yeah. pensioner. In 30 years' time, we'll have two workers for every pension. So it's quite clear that is not sustainable. But I think what the Fiscal Council have done today is they've said to young, uh, younger voters, it's quite clear now, yeah, if you want to leave the pension age at 66, it's going to cost you, and you're going to be paying for it, you in your 20s, you in your 30s, and you in your 40s. I, I find it one of the most depressing aspects of Irish politics, uh, this particular story. It, to me, it encompasses everything about politics and populism triumphing over fiscal reality. Uh, and I, for me, it's quite clear what needs to happen. I mean, the, the, the experts <coughs> in this, the Pensions uh, Commission, who were, who were brought in to look at this, 10 out of 11 of them, said this needs to change. And it was what they suggested was quite reasonable. Over 18 years, a really long... I mean, one of, your, one of your speakers in the Vox was saying it shouldn't happen overnight. It was never going to happen overnight. It was over 18 years, gradually, 2039... 66 to 67 to 68. 68. Really slow. And we're yeah. living way, way longer. I mean, it, to me, it's just common sense. But populism has taken over and uh, common sense has gone out the window. Uh, Jennifer Carr, McNeil, Fine Gael fell for that populism too, didn't they? You buckled it at the chance of the last uh, election because you agreed that the pension age could remain at 66 as it currently is today. We, we were arguing for it to go to 67. We were arguing for trans, transi transition payments to try to... I remember being on the doors. I remember having these conversations with young people who were saying, look, my, my parents have worked all their lives, as you've heard but on the Vox Pop there. Just the you did sign up the to the programme of government which left it at 66. The agreement between Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and Labour has, has left it at 66. Sinn Féin wanted it to be 65. They had legislated for it to be 68. 
Northern Ireland. They've gone back to 65. These are the political choices that are made. But I, you know, I think the report today is very important because I think the sustainability of pensions is a huge issue for young people. I mean, I certainly wasn't thinking about my pension when I was in my 20s, probably should have been, but it's not a kind of thing that you think about. But these are the honest consequences of the choices that we make in politics. And it's important to set out the implications of them. It's important to set out the tw 10 and 20 and 30 year choices that, that we're so making and to we're have a pension system then. that's they, having a sustainable... Were they wrong then to agree uh, back at the last election and the last programme of uh, for government when it was agreed. Were you wrong then to say, so. we'll leave it, we'll agree I, I, to leave I, I, it? I don't this ticking so. time no, bomb did, that's costing our young people. What we did was, what we did was there was a pensions commission established to go through exactly as, as Shane and, and Hugh have said, to go through the arguments in relation to it. But at the end of the day, the political consensus in Leinster House is to have it at 66, or indeed Sinn Féin wanted it at 65. That is, the, that is, that is the, the democratic outcome of the last election and the conversations that were had at that time. What I'm saying is, I think it's really important that we, that I, I think today's report is a really important moment and I hope that it can reflect across some of the other things where we make short-term populist choices to be able to set out sustainably. Look, people in your 20s and 30s, we are living longer. It costs 500 million a year extra just on pensions okay. because we're so living longer. just to be clear, you agree so now the pension really age honest does about need it. to be increased? If it were me on my own, I would, I, I, to be honest with you, I would be saying, look, we have to be really honest about this and we need to move to a point where we can get more flexibility for people so that they can retire at a later age, that we can be honest about the cost of those different things. So when I do think you think, just to be clear, Jennifer, if you, let's say it was you, not the Fine Gael party, you, uh, when do you think the pension age needs to change and change to what? I think people need to be given a choice. I think people need to be given a choice between the consequences of retiring at 66, 67, 68, 69, 70, and that you set out to people the implications in terms of cost, not just from the general taxation perspective, but that you can incentivise people to work in different ways. We also have an auto-enrolment pension system now to try to provide better security for people on the private side. So we need these different, broader sustainability of it, and we need different measures for people, particularly on the private sector side, who don't benefit as well from public sector pensions. But I think we need to have a sustainable pension system. I think we need to be honest about the cost of it and I think we need to provide people with flexibility and choice. Uh, Mairead, we listened to some of the young people there talking about struggling to pay rent, struggling to try and save a deposit for a house, to get a mortgage, the cost of living crisis, etc. And your party would claim, wouldn't you, to, to represent those young people. And yet, you want the pension age reduced to 65. Uh, that was one of the choices that you thought people should be given. So do you accept that those young people that you say you represent are going to have to pay two, two and a half thousand, three thousand more on pretty average wages to pay for those pensions? Do you accept that? Well, I suppose, first of all, just to be very clear in terms of... Um, first of all, it's really good that we're actually having this conversation in terms of the cost um, of pensions. And I, I think it's funny that I seem to be in the minority in, on this panel um, in terms of believing that people should have the right um, to access a pension at 65. And, of course, as we know, um, at the time um, when it was, it was always a pension at 66, but it was right to access um, a pension type payment. But I think what was very clear um, in the 2020 general election that it absolutely outraged people who knew that they had been working in intensive manual um, labouring jobs, uh, people who are working on their feet all day, that they don't ha wouldn't have that right to retire at 65. I think also in relation to but the just, report that just we've seen... Okay, Marita, just to go, go back, back to, to what I really you said. I really want to go to that issue because I think it would enrage, as we saw some of those young people today, but people in I their 20s that, okay, think, thinking that they're going to have to pay an extra 2,500 euro a year in taxes on a wage 
of three of thirty-five thousand. Fifty, yeah. Oh yeah, so I think sorry, so it was 50, two thousand yeah. on a wage of uh, yeah, thirty-five thousand no yeah. and two and a half thousand on a wage of so fifty. So two and a half thousand and fifty. But of course, we do know that this is um, first of all, oh, it's over a, a period of, of time. This is one. We know that we need to pay for pensions. That's absolutely the. That's an absolute fact. We need so to have a discussion about how. We'll have to pay those people in their 20s Well, if we're talking about the next 30s. 30 years, those people who are in their 20s and, uh, and 30s now will actually be at retirement age at that very po po moment in time. So I think that's a really important point to be made. However, in terms, of, in, terms of the, um, in terms of how we actually pay for it, I think we need to have that broader um, conversation. But we have been very clear, and I know that Fine Gael have kind of flip-flopped on the issue in terms of wanting it to go to 68, to go... Uh, go to 67, go to 68. We've been very clear that those people who have been working all their okay, lives... Sorry, sorry, just to clear sorry can yeah. I just actually... You may, yeah, yeah, but didn't you legislate for that? You, you gave, Sinn Féin gave unanimous support to that in 2012 in Northern Ireland. Okay, 68, actually, I meant to and then, and then, yeah, and now, now you've gone back to 65 because that post the general election 2020. So just to, just to be clear on that, you can talk about flip-flopping, but didn't you actually legislate for it? In Northern Ireland. So just to be actually very clear on that, and I think that's a really important point that you raised, Jennifer, in relation to um, the North, that was a decision by Westminster. And yes. had and no, it, it was. And look, we would absolutely love to have fiscal powers, um, complete fiscal powers in the in the North. But the reality is else. that that... I oh, know it's not someone else. We know that in, having fiscal powers is extremely important. So when we even look at how we would pay for this, having fiscal powers is extremely important. Does any mm -hmm. political party, Hugh, have a plan currently for how to pay <laughs> the pensions? Well, no, not really, I don't think. Um, I mean, this is... You know, never, never. It's on the never, never. I mean, that's, Jennifer that's brought up auto-enrolment. I mean, I've been hearing about auto-enrolment for at least five years. I remember interviewing Leo Varadkar when he was Social Protection Minister in 2017, and he was talking about we're going to do this auto-enrolment scheme uh, for, for pensions for people in the private sector. An awful lot of people in the private sector who don't have a pension hasn't happened. There's been... It was announced by Heather Humphreys. It was announced by Heather When's Humphreys. When's it happening? But is it, when's I, it going to effect? Heather Humphreys, who is, the, I think, the second or third social protection minister since Leo Varadkar was in social protection. My point is, mm. is that successive governments, successive ministers and successive uh, political parties have dodged this issue because they know it's politically toxic. But I think but there's but also another point. I mean, look at, see... look at the party that... Sorry, Shane, but look at the party that got the most votes in the last general election. It was the party that said, we'll bring the pension age back to 60. If you want to see an exercise in economic and political fantasy, check out the Joint Oireachtas Committee report on this. It's an embarrassment. It's shameful. And politicians know absolutely well what's in that report is nonsense. But for their own political hides, they were quite happy to produce that report. And we will, we will pay, there will be a price for this. There's absolutely no doubt about it. But it's further down the road and politicians aren't worried about okay, it. OK, but Jennifer, sorry, uh, Jennifer, I want to go back to you because the Commission um, for Taxation report uh, was in the Irish Times, the front page of the Irish Times today, did look at how, I suppose, the government's going to pay for things in the future, like the pension uh, time bomb. And it looked at whether or not we need to increase, and in fact, it recommends, it appears, that we increase the tax state coming from wealth and capital taxes. So that's increasing things like land, shares, the money you have in your account, property, basically a bigger tax on the rich. Do you agree with that? Well, first of all, I haven't seen that report. It hasn't been published. It hasn't gone to government. So we're talking about media reports of part of it. I, okay, but there was, I think there so, was direct quotes today from the report 
in the Irish Times, which we are to so believe. I would very much like to read the whole report and see what else it says. But you're absolutely right. It talks about looking at the, all of the different options for raising taxation. And they include extending property tax, different wealth taxes. They also include looking at who's paying income tax and is every, everybody who should be paying income tax, are they paying? And at what proportion, at what rate are they hitting the higher level of income tax? And how do we look at that in the complete round? You mean as in have, should everybody pay income tax, the, including those who aren't paying it? Correct, correct. That's and what that you is want one, to see. No, that is what, what I would like to see in the report. Has it looked at all of those different things? Is it, for example, acknowledging that there are close to a million workers who pay absolutely no income tax, 17% pay most of the income tax? So what I would like to see is, I'd like to actually see the report that we're talking about, and I'd like to see how it looks at the, the, the breadth of sustainable okay. tax measures. But the but theory, I, think I suppose the theory, it's very important, this. Jennifer, the theory, the theory and this. the principle about Progressivity. No, creating, it's not a wealth tax, because I think it, it you know, rules out or doesn't recommend a wealth tax. Correct. But in, this, in essence, it is a wealth tax. It's so a tax it, yeah. on so essence, property, land, exactly. deposits. In, in essence, Do you agree with that? In essence, it says that, it, that, that says that the people who have the most should pay the most, right? And I do agree with that. And that is actually the taxation system that we have on two no, levels. They, said they need to pay more. They said actually an they make increased it more, material. More progressive. We, we have already made the local property tax, which is the biggest form of wealth tax that we can have and that we do have because it applies to all properties, to, to, everybody's, to everybody's home. And we have made that more progressive in the last number of years. I see that in particular in my constituency where property values are among the highest in the country and people's property tax has gone up very considerably. So the people who have the, the assets of greatest value pay the most so in a wealth, form me, of wealth Jennifer, tax like that we already, they already have. Pay enough. And, already, and it is also the case in the income tax that people who earn the most pay the most by far in income tax. So we have a very progressive tax system and we will always look at different and new taxation measures. There's no difficulty with that. But I think when you're having this conversation, you've got to set the context that we already have on the two major income streams that you're talking about there, income and wealth, a very, very significant progressivity to our tax base already. So you would disagree then? No, I didn't say... I have, on a report I haven't seen, I'd like to actually see the report. But you seem report. to be seeing... Well, you, you haven't seen the report, but Correct, you commented on other elements I've, of the I report, know, like the income tax no, for the lower paid. What I've talked about is I'm asking you about generally. the theory, The Jennifer, theory is, I support... taking more from those who have more, do you think they already pay enough? I, the theory is, when I take more from people who have more, we already do it, I already support it. We have a progressive tax base, and I'd like to see that continue. Uh, Mairead, they did um, recommend today in this report that we haven't seen, but I'm going to choose to believe <laughs> the Irish Times that they have uh, the correct information. We can read more in the Irish Independent tomorrow. We can read more in the Irish Independent tomorrow. Thank you, Hugh, for that plug. Um, Mairead, they did uh, recommend looking at the property tax again and perhaps increasing the take from property tax as a way of, I suppose, taxing the wealthy. But you disagree fundamentally with well, look, I suppose a property tax, which makes no sense at all, well, some would say. Well, I would say it makes absolute sense, but there's been a lot to unpack here. There's been a few comments, but I'll, I'll come to your um, question um, first. And I suppose in relation to property tax, we've been very clear. The reality is that um, the property tax just simply doesn't take into account the ability to pay. And I, I'll tell you, and I'm sure um, many other people who are watching um, will hear from their elderly neighbours and that. And I, and I always think particularly of this particular woman that had, uh, that had stopped me on the street and had said she was a pensioner, a widowed pensioner. She had the house that she had raised her family in um, and she didn't see any increases in terms of actually the money that was coming in, but she just saw this money going out and going out. Now, we put forward every year an alternative budget, um, a variety of, of, of taxes um, that we believe, in terms of those very much, those um, 
top earners. And I think the reality is for anybody that's that's watching um, here tonight and all the talk about about taxes that people are are happy to pay taxes when they see what um, what they get as a result of it. And the reality is that so many people when they saw with the um, local property tax, they just did not see that knock on impact in terms. And I'm talking about people in the ruralist okay. of areas across the country. But I do want to just come Shane, on to I'd like, I'd like to just say one point, though, because Hugh did mention Sinn Féin. So I just wanted to come uh, come back on that particular point. Um, you know, you, you said, you know, we made hay on this particular issue. The reality, oh, sorry. <laughs> um, the reality is... I don't is, disagree, though. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, but the reality is um, what we do and what we did in that general election, what we have been continuously mm. doing, is, is standing up and giving a voice to people who don't see their voice heard. And that, okay. again, goes... Okay. When we so go I didn't to, say you um, didn't, but the point but, is, but, is, but, is that you did argue for bringing the pension that. age back which was something that was popular with voters. And it forced the other, forced the other popular, two political parties to change okay, the position. Okay, I want to go back to the popular is voting against property tax year after year, despite it bringing in sustained yeah. revenues, broadening uh, the Shane, tax base. You, You're for you know wealth tax, sorry, but folks, not I just want to let Shane you know back in here. Popular. Shane, should people who have more in this country pay more and that money go towards the pension? Yeah, example? I mean, I, I think there should be wealth taxes. I think there probably should be more wealth taxes. But by, by wealth taxes, I don't mean a wealth tax. I'm not sure that has really worked anywhere. I mean, we have a wealth tax in the moment. It's called the property tax. Uh, incredibly, in this country, the left are opposed to the property tax. It is the only country I know of anywhere in the world where the left is opposed to a property tax. We have Trotskyite TDs in the Dáil who do not agree with a property tax. Now, if that isn't populism, I don't know what is. And just again, because I'm the one on this panel that seems to be the only one who's opposed to this, um, is very clear that it does not take on the ability to pay. And this is the issue that we actually have. The the reality is... it's not an income tax. Well, I'll bring you then to people in my... my, Literally in my estate who are finding it difficult to pay. Briefly, very briefly, uh, Hugh, would we ever, do you think, get political agreement that we change how we tax people in this country. We don't look at income, we look at sort of wealth in general. Because that's what that um, commission... Well, I mean, income is, is wealth, today. I suppose. You know, people who earn more, you know, in a progressive tax system are generally taxed more and that they pay a higher rate on, on the higher end of the income that they have. So, like, but getting agreement on that is difficult when you have a situation where there are certain political parties who, who uh, are against the property tax, for example, um, Sinn Féin want to bring in a third rate of tax on incomes over €140,000, is that right? That's something that, that Fine Gael and, and, yeah, that Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil are against. So in that space, you're not going to get much of this agreement on this. All right, look, we're going to leave that there for now. But my panel are staying with us because after the break, the public sector looks set to get a pay raise. Are the private sector being left behind? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You're very welcome back. Now, as the dust settles on the public pay talks, which saw an offer of 6.5% pay over the next 16 months for those in the sector, one thing has become clear. The private sector will face increased pressure, anyhow, to raise their wages too, to help narrow the gap. Well, my panel of Jennifer Carl McNeil, Mairead Farrell, Shane Coleman and Hugh O'Connell are still with us. But first, I just want to go to a story that's um, getting a bit of traction this evening. Hugh, um, our Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, is a landlord, but it appears he doesn't have all his ducks in a row either. Yeah, this is a story broken by the Irish Times this evening. Uh, Jennifer Bray, uh, effectively, Stephen Donnelly has a, a property that he rents in Sandyford on a long-term tenancy and uh, it was registered with the RTB. That registration lapsed at a certain point, uh, I think in 2019, and it wasn't registered. So effectively, it wasn't registered for the last three years. And uh, the minister only corrected this when the uh, stories about Robert Troy began emerging last week. So he's you know, said that everything is now in order, but certainly there'll be questions asked, and I think he'll be out um, tomorrow on health matters and certainly be asked about this issue that, that he was basically a, a landlord who hadn't registered his property, um, which was being rented out for three years with the Residential Tenancies Board, which is a legal obligation. So it's not a good look for a lawmaker. No, uh, Jennifer, like politicians are legislating for this. They are under media scrutiny. They're not doing it. There seems to be a pretty relaxed attitude to it. I, I think there is some comment this evening from Stephen Donnelly saying that, look, it was an oversight mistake. Is that good enough? From another politician? Um, look, you, you've got to you've got to have your members' interests in in order. You've got to comply with the law. You, you know you, that that they are the rules, and you simply have to. Um, making mistakes where you have an illegal obligation to register a tenancy. You know these things must be done, and we'll wait to see from hear more from Stephen Donnelly tomorrow. And hopefully that's the end of the matter. But like you know, you have to comply with the rules. That it, that's just the way it is. Is there sort of a relaxed attitude in Leinster House to this? Well. I don't have a relaxed attitude to it. I fill in my form. My one is quite straightforward. I don't have any other assets other than my salary and my family home. Like So it's quite straightforward for, for me, um, but it's really a straightforward process anyway. Um, it's not a difficult thing. You can look at the form. They're all published. It's it's not difficult. I mean, the problem with ethics legislation in this country is I think that the politicians think of it as a kind of, I'm not saying no, this in, in the case of, of you, but some politicians think of this as a once a year exercise. And Robert Troy, for example, thought that it was only the stuff that he had in his possession or that were his assets on a, on a particular date. Uh, the whole way in which politicians, I think, think about ethics, uh, comply with ethics legislation needs to be rethought. And indeed, the former ethics uh, uh, regulator, Sherry Perot, did an interview in March with me and, and she said that, like, we need to think about this differently. Politicians need to be far more forthcoming and be required to be far more forthcoming in terms of their assets and their liabilities. But I think just have no difficulty with that whatsoever. No difficulty with any sort of check-in mechanism. Yeah, but again, no it's, difficulty with it's not anything. unlike the pensions issue. You know, Successive governments have ignored uh, requests from SIPO to deal with this matter and for recommendations. 20 years. Okay, look, I just want to move on um, because I want to get to the public um, sector pay deal because, Shane, we did get a bit more, I suppose, detail on it today, didn't we, about who in the public sector is going to benefit. And it seems everybody, actually, notwithstanding what you earn. Yeah, look, it's 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 a good deal uh, for the public sector. There's no no doubt about that. And look, they, they probably had the government over a barrel uh, politically because we are facing into a winter of discontent. There is almost no question about that. Energy prices are going to go up. There is a problem. The lights will, will be switched off at some point uh, during the winter. And I think the last thing the government wanted was to add into that mix uh, 
public sector union unrest. So I think the government had to do a deal. And for that reason... It was worth it, uh, I think. I mean, look, uh, you've got, what, two, the government had 2.7 billion euros to spend in the budget. 1.4 of that is now gone. So realistically, there's less money for health, less money for education, less money for social welfare. Politically, I don't know, we were talking earlier about economics versus politics. Politics have probably trumped economics. That's the reality. Now, look, I'm, I'm very sympathetic with public sector workers. Like everybody, they're struggling to make ends meet. Good luck to their unions for driving a, a hard bargain. But there is less money to go around. There's no doubt about it. It is politics triumphing over economics. There's, yeah. there's no doubt and about Marie, that. do you accept that, as it stands, the average public sector worker in this country is now going to be better off than the average private sector worker in terms, I suppose, of their spending power, given the fact that everybody's has been cut due to inflation? Well, I suppose I came from the um, private sector and, um, it, you know, we'll see now how the public sector um, workers actually end up voting and we won't actually see that um, and that outcome until October and until after the budget. So I think um, that there will be very much an eye to the cost of living measures as well. We can see that. Um, but I suppose they will the benefit budget. everybody. I'm but just I talking about yeah, I suppose, I know, but I think private that, sector workers I think that we should, You know, when we were talking about the pensions earlier, now when we're talking about this, I, I actually don't think we should take it as a very much like, oh, it's this sector or this age group against this age group. We need to look at it as an all society kind of approach. And I think at the end of the day, um, the, go the state is the employer here. Um, so it was up to them to, um, to negotiate this pay deal whether the um, public sector workers vote for it or not uh, will obviously be to, to be seen. But of course, all employees at this very moment in time are struggling. All workers are struggling at this moment in time because of the, the, the increase in the cost of living. So I am Do you have very any difficulty sure with all public sectors benefiting from this, notwithstanding what their income or their salary is? Well, I think it's up to the unions to, to negotiate it. And this is what has been negotiated with the government. It's not to me, for me to, um, to, try, to try and alter that on the airwaves. Do I think that people in private sector um, workers will be looking and, and saying that they need, that they're struggling, depending on where, where they're working and if they have been getting pay increases. But there's many, of course, that haven't seen pay increases in yeah. years. I was working in the private sector and hadn't seen pay increases for a very long period of time. But I do think at the end of the day... So, so there's things is there that an the unfairness then? Here well, no, now. because the government Have we created no, sort of two tiers: those who are able to withstand no, this cost of living crisis better than those who, uh, no, for example, might be in the private sector and haven't benefited no, because from the, the pay rate. The reality here, like we need to be real about this: like the state is actually the employer here. The, the state can't, you know, um, force other employers to increase wages. That's just not the way it works. They mm. can deal with. If I can just finish the point, that they they can deal with their, their direct employers. But what they can do then is look at the budget and look how they can help. Um, the general workers okay, who aren't Jennifer, under this pay deal to actually deal with the cost of living crisis. But absolutely, you, people will be looking for pay increases. Does this, do you think, exert upward wage cost pressure in the private sector? I think inflation generally up exerts that pressure. No, this particular, this particular pay hike that it appears public people, sector workers I think, are going I think, to I think, I think I think inflation generally does. And I think what you have to recognise is that I have a private sector background too and I think about all of the people whom I used to work with, particularly young women, particularly in their 20s, early 30s, and you don't have the job security in the same way. You don't necessarily have somebody negotiating for you. You don't necessarily want somebody negotiating, but you want job security. You want to know that you have a good job. Okay, we have we have very high employment at the moment, but a lot, you know, a huge part of our economy is being driven by the private sector. And they do need to be called out and respected. And the measures that we can try to take for those people are tax indexation, 
making sure that they're taking home more of what they pay, which Sinn Féin proposes, of, of course, as uh, last okay, year. Okay, but that would benefit, obviously, public sector yes, workers but, as well. But, 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 that, that, but as, as, as Marie says, the state is the employer there. We have um, employers going out, creating jobs, taking risk, employing people, paying them. Sinn Féin want to put a tax on those jobs. They want to increase employers' PRSI okay. to make jobs even more risky, to make jobs even more expensive in the private sector. Can I just say, because I need to answer this one. So in terms of the employer PRSI, that is on employees over 100. Yeah, over 100,000. All right, I want to get Hugh back in here. Hugh, is there evidence of pay increases in the private sector in the range of six and a half percent? I don't think so, no. Um, not, not in my experience or not, in, not from what I've seen. I haven't studied the data very, uh, very carefully, but I, you know, I think there will inevitably be at a time of, of you know, rocketing inflation, uh, you know, a degree of people in, in the private sector looking at this deal this week and thinking like, that's just, it's not on. They won't accept it. They won't like it. And, you know, ultimately, whatever the cost of living package is in the budget and whatever help the government gives to households in September, I mean, that will go to public sector workers as well, you know. So they, they are in a slightly better position. And don't forget, one of the dip elements of the deal is this 3% uh, of, of, it, of the payment will be backdated to February 2022. So you've got public sector workers coming into November, December, who are going to get a, a lump sum, which will be of enormous help to some of them. But don't forget as well, TDs and senators are entitled to this pay increase. So TDs are going to be earning close to €110,000 a year now. So that's uh, you, Maria, and you, Jennifer. Yeah, and as you know, we have I've gifted back. Uh, yeah, no, that's and a fair look, point. And yeah, fair. yeah, and some TDs do that as well. I'm, I'm not sure what Jennifer's and position that's is. A, but... That's an individual right. choices. But I think the, a very important point, and something okay. that um, you made actually earlier on, on the radio, and I was listening with interest, was you know that you knew a woman on forty thousand who was really struggling. But the reality is, okay. why are people struggling? The huge right. cost in terms of rent. The huge cost in terms. All of right, look, sorry, I have to leave it there. I've run out of time. My thanks to Jennifer, to Marie, to Shane, and Hugh. I wish I had more time to speak to you all, but. I'm afraid uh, I don't we'll have to leave it there. But after the break, we're going to learn just how easy it is to fall prey to a banking scam. Stay with us. Welcome back. Now, we've all been warned again and again to be wary of banking scams, but even the best of us can still get caught out. Well, I'm joined in studio by Niall Fitzmaurice, who's here to tell us about his experience, and cybersecurity expert Brian Honan. You're both very welcome to the programme. Uh, Niall, you were the victim of a scam that happened this week. Fraudsters got into your bank account and took your savings, €15,000. So tell me about the moment yesterday when you looked in the account and realised it had been wiped. Well, I got a call at lunchtime yesterday um, saying that there was money about to go out and um, uh, and uh, I told them I'd already got a call the day before about other unusual activity and uh, the bank told me that that was not them who had previously called um, on the first call on Monday. Um, so on that call, they told me it was, there was unusual usual activity as well and um went through my transactions and gave me the ones which were correct and i i googled the, the number just to make sure um and it came up as aib helpline this was a call that you received on monday yeah so you had received a text message hadn't you into your phone on your thread of messages that you've received in the past maybe and then you got a call a follow-up call from a number that when you googled was an AIB helpline. 
Yeah, I hadn't even noticed the text. I got the text at the weekend, hadn't noticed it, and then got the call on Monday um, saying there was unusual activity and they went through everything, everything with me. Um, and they had details from your they had all They had Legit- all my details. Legitimate details. Yeah, they had all my details about me and my previous transactions. And then they just told me these other transactions which weren't me. And uh, I confirmed that. And then they told me I would need to, I'd obviously been, my account would be compromised. So I needed to close it and close my online account and cancel my cards. Um, so I followed their instructions and d- deleted my AIB app, as they said. And then the other thing to cancel my cards, they said I needed to use my AIB card reader. I just put my card in that, put in my PIN. So they said, we won't ask you for your PIN or any passwords. Just put it into the card reader, mm-hmm. put in your PIN yourself and give us the code to prove you're the card reader. And so I did that. And then he said, right, that's everything sorted so that they'll be in the posts there. The... All sounded fine. Yeah. And, and the... just to be clear, when you received that text message into your phone and there was a link to sort of an AIP account or something purporting to be an AIP account, did you open that link? Did you put in any details? Not that I remember. I Again, I didn't even remember getting that link until then uh, the next day um, when I was talking to the actual AIB people. They asked me had I got a link and I went back and checked my AIB threads with all the authentic AIB messages and there was a, a message at, from the weekend with a link in it which I didn't even remember seeing but I may have possibly clicked on it uh, and then closed it. I, I didn't fill anything out, didn't didn't put in uh, any details. And that details. was enough? A- apparently so, yeah. And Brian, is that enough? Literally a text message um, comes into your phone and these people are sending out thousands yeah. and thousands of text messages hoping somebody clicks a link. Is that enough? Open the link on your phone and then they get access to your details and then eventually they're able to speak to you. Is it, this how this works? It, at a high level, yes, but it does depend on maybe the type of phone you have, if it's up to date with the latest software to make it secure, uh, etc. cetera, uh, or whether or not they may have got Niles information previously. Maybe the text on Saturday is a red herring. I, I don't know because we don't know the details of, of yeah. the actual case. But, uh, yes, these criminals are, you know, uh, they're clever and they know how to, uh, how to push the right buttons with people. We have this mythology about cybercrime and hackers that they're kind of pimply teenagers stuck away in basements and sure, uh, you know, that they're fine, don't, don't worry too much about them. But these are actually uh, organized criminals who don't care who they hurt or how they get money. And they are, they, they are professionals. They spend time in looking at ways how to scare people or coax people into doing things that they want. So they, they will use phrases to, to, for urgency. You know, your account's been hacked or you're going to miss this payment or uh, there's a delivery being delayed and to click on this link or your, your tax is overdue. We're even seeing from the UK in the past 24 hours where they're sending scam emails and texts out to people pretending to be from energy providers offering cheap energy because I'm using they people's fears. They know they're going to get people. That's, and that's, what, that's and how they ha- do it. What I found incredible about yours right now is that the number that you got the call from was a legitimate yeah. AIB number. So this is what they're doing. Well, yeah, so there, there, are, there are ways. They're able to mask their number. They're able to mask them. They're, they're, they're able to what we call, it's called spoofing the number. It's pretending to 
that their number is coming from another another person's number. So, Kira, I could I could spoof your number and make phone calls pretending to be from you, and that's how they do that. They they spoof the phone numbers uh, so that the it looks like it's a genuine number from from AIB or your 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 bank or whomever it may be, and you think yes, it's a it's a genuine text or it's a genuine email because it looks like it's coming from uh, your bank or it's a genuine phone call, and as I said, they're trained then, even, you know, Niall, uh, talking. Yeah, you're, you're a young person, you're tech savvy, yeah, you think you, know, you would be and so I think in. People need to realise the, these are professionals. Anybody could fall for this. Okay. We just need to be extra vigilant when it comes to being online. All right, well, a little earlier I spoke to Detective Inspector Mel Smith from the Garda National Economic Crime Bureau and I began by asking him if scams appear to be getting more sophisticated or ultimately are people, make, people making the same mistakes? Um, that's probably the case. Um, it is, there is a certain level of sophistication uh, on behalf of fraudsters um, and also um, good old human um, interaction where they prepare scripts once they start to speak to a victim. But it starts, it usually starts with some sort of a, a text message uh, where it's sent out, and it's almost like a fisherman where he throws out hooks and he's waiting for someone, to, a fish, to catch onto a hook. So once the text message goes out, it will often have a link. That link will bring you to a bank account. You enter in your uh, login details, and as you do that, the fraudster is recording those details. And they now have, it, you're onto, the, the link is to a fake website. So you're logged onto this fake, you're in this fake website, you put in your um, whatever details you need in your passcode, and now the fraudster can log in to your bank account, whether it's AIB, Bank of Ireland, or whatever. But the problem they have is they're in your bank account, but they can't transfer money from that. They need to add a payee um, or a person. So we've all done that, that people are familiar with online banking. But to do that, in most cases, you will need another level of security. So if, so if I was to add someone to my account, I would uh, add the person. Uh, once I go to, do, go to actually create the new PE, I would get a one-time passcode. And that might be through a card reader, it might be a text message, or it might be a notification uh, through the, the app that I, I use for my particular account. Um, now, and then I add the PE. The fraudster needs that six-digit uh, passcode. And he will come up with a story, or she will come up with a story to get that six-digit passcode or whatever the code might be from their victim. And that's where the level of sophistication comes in, where they will uh, pretend to be, say, from the fraud department of one of our major banks. They will spoof the number so that you think uh, the, the call is coming from, um, the, say, the AIB or Bank of Ireland fraud line. So you, you, you'll feel a certain level of security. You might even Google it while you're online and see that number and, and feel that comfort. And uh, they will then proceed to maybe alert you to um, some uh, risky transaction on your account. Are these crimes on the increase? Um, I wouldn't say they're on the increase, but they're ongoing. Uh, it's a never-ending uh, saga, unfortunately. Uh, we have had a number of arrests over the last number of months. Um, at times, it, it ebbs and flows. Um, the fraudsters are always um, watching out for... Um, different security uh, measures used by banks, and uh, they're rehearsing their 
scripts, changing their scripts, but the goal is always the same. Okay, and it's not the only online scam because the Guardian today were warning about accommodation scams, particularly, I suppose, around this time of year when there's such a frantic search for students to secure accommodation and students feeling desperate, I suppose. That's correct. And um, actually 50% of uh, victims are actually under 25. Um, I think um, the, the big issue here is that um, there's a lot of, a big, huge shortage of, of um, accommodation and people are panicking. And when people are panicking, they don't think, and the fraudsters will exploit that. They will uh, advertise on social media. Um, we, we always recommend go through the main websites. If you go through social media, that's the first thing. It's a social media. That's all it is. It's just a website or an advertisement. Um, you need to do your due diligence and you need to check that. Um, how do you do that? Um, when you make contact with the, uh, with the landlord or supposed landlord, you need to ask lots of questions. You need to go and visit the property. Uh, when you meet them in person, um, or will they meet you in person? If they won't meet you in person, that's a major red flag. Uh, they'll come up with some excuse. They will look for cash in advance. Um, all of those type of things, red flags that you, you have to think about. All right, we'll leave it there. Thank you for your time. Okay, thanks. Well, that's it from us. My thanks to Niall, Brian and to all of our guests this evening for more discussion and analysis on the big stories of the day. Check out the group chat. It's up next over on Virgin Media 2. But from all of the late team here, good night. Take care. is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.